Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. The winners are the, the people with the most stories. One of the great things about traveling is the people that you meet. I've slept in bus stations, like yeah. I've slept on people's floors. And it's already on fire, and then there's just a gigantic, huge explosion, like out of a Hollywood movie. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. We hired like 10 Chinese prostitutes to come be our audience. We were kidnapped by nuns in Puerto Rico. <laughs> not a good idea to be high when you're packing. You forget a lot of stuff. I got swine flu. By the time you've lived through it, it's just a good story. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Siegel. My guest today is Bruce Marshall Romans. Before we get to Bruce, I wanted to say that our website is, of course, TravelTalesPodcast.com. Go there. You can see photos of our guests. You can read articles that I've written and some of the guests have written. And also, there are links to all our social media. And by social media, I mean, of course, our Facebook page. Find us, Travel Tales Podcast, on Facebook. You can find us at Travel Tales Pod on Twitter and Travel Tales Podcast on Instagram. Follow us. Give us a like. Do what you got to do. Also, uh, there are links to Stitcher Radio, where you can subscribe to this show. And, of course, iTunes, where you can subscribe. And if you are on iTunes, I would appreciate it if you give us a good rating, because that uh, helps people find the show, boosts our presence, and blah, 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 blah. So, it is great to be back in America. I have been gone for a month, and I apologize that uh, I haven't been live for a month. I put some episodes in the can before I left. So now, this is my first since the trip. I did a week-long cruise off the French coast for Crystal Cruise Line, which I realized and learned it is a very high-end, kind of six-star, they call it, six-star cruise line. And everything's inclusive, including the alcohol, which is uh, the first for me on working a cruise ship. Everything. And I thought maybe, you know, if it's alcohol included, that the vodka or whatever be like well vodka. And I went up and asked for a vodka martini. And I said, what are my choices? And they said, oh, we have like Kettle One, Grey Goose. And I was like, really? That's all inclusive. This is a high end thing. It was a smaller ship that I was used to. A lot of the cruise ships nowadays are around, you know, between 2,000 and 2,500 passengers. This one was about about 850, uh, but uh, exclusive, very nice. So if you get a chance to do crystal cruises, I recommend it. Went around the, this one, I met it in Bordeaux, beautiful town, Bordeaux. And I got to say, I much like going to these little cities in Europe on a cruise more than Caribbean islands, which after a while, I will be honest, start to look all alike to me. Give me going to cities and docking. And sometimes we stayed overnight. We stayed overnight in Bordeaux. We stayed overnight in Antwerp, Belgium, which was beautiful. And uh, Honfleur, France, we stayed overnight there as well, which was uh, just gorgeous. The only drag about it was uh, it rained a lot. I don't know if you noticed in early June, there was um, a lot of flooding throughout France and in Paris, and it kind of rained every day a little bit. So that was kind of a drag. But I left the ship in Amsterdam, went down to see some friends in Maastricht, the Netherlands, that day. Uh, my friends Dave and Nancy, who I climbed uh, Mount Kilimanjaro with a couple of years ago, it was great to see them, spent a couple of days with them, and then I went uh, to Belgium for the first time in my life, went to... Uh, I had been in to Antwerp uh, earlier in the week on the ship, which is um, a cool town. I mean, great architecture. 
and uh, some great restaurants. Great restaurants all throughout Belgium, actually. And, uh, of course, great beer. Oh, really good beer. And chocolate. And, of course, French fries. And waffles. A lot of waffles. But, yeah, so Brussels, Bruges, and Ghent is where I went. And Brussels, kind of, of, of all those four cities, if you throw in Antwerp, Brussels maybe my least favorite. Just It was just kind of bigger and more of a, a regular city. But uh, I got to Bruges, and Bruges is very famous, of course, from the movie In Bruges which it does look like that, kind of fairy tale like and uh you know, just just old architecture uh from the sixteen hundreds, seventeen hundreds and earlier. And uh just, you know, cobblestone streets, very romantic. And uh there's also Ghent, which is between Bruges and Brussels. And so the best part is they're only like Ghent and Bruges are only about a half hour apart on the train. And you could see them both one day each, like you could stay in one city and just take a day trip to the other ones. It's very simple to do. I think my train was like $6 one way. Uh, but I actually liked uh, Ghent a little better. I thought it was just as beautiful as Bruges, but less touristy, a little bigger. There's a university there too, so it's got a little kind of student hipper vibe. So if I had to choose, I, would, I liked Ghent a little better. And uh, other people might disagree, but there you go. And once again, uh, drink, drink all the beer you can. Really, really good. Uh, I had earlier plans later after Bruges or after uh, Ghent to go down to Lens, France, to see the uh, European Championships, the soccer matches going on. I wanted to go to the Wales-England match that was happening. But um, bad weather combined with the fact that I couldn't get a ticket and that my friends in Europe kind of bailed on me. And... Uh, and the the real expense and hassle of going and finding accommodation and all that stuff, I just kind of bailed. And also, the fact that uh, the England fans had uh, caused, uh, well, they were playing Russia uh, a few days earlier down in Marseille, and there was a lot of riots and violence and a lot of that. And so uh, it's always a risk at some of these tournaments, especially when England's involved. And so I just kind of took a pass on it and went and met my friend Dara, who was, had been on the show, Dara uh, McGarry, who lives in London, and she was going to a uh, work trip in Annecy, France, A-N-N-E-C-Y, which is in the Alps. And uh, gorgeous, really, really gorgeous. Um, this picturesque town with a river going through it. It's kind of Venice-like. But uh, again, a lot of rain, man. Whew. The river was high and moving quick. Um, but we went there and I would love to see this place in the winter during ski season. It's up near, um, what was the name of the place? Albertville, France, where they had the winter Olympics, I think in the eighties or nineties. And, uh, so it's up in that area, just beautiful with mountains surrounding it. Uh, but in the sun, in the sun, I can only imagine how great it looks because it looked beautiful in cloudy weather. Uh, So we spent a few days there, and then uh, one night in Geneva before I went down to Mallorca for a week. And Mallorca, folks, oh, it was great to see the sun. Consistent, sunny weather, very California-like, dry. I really recommend that. It's preferably with a a loved one. It's very romantic. I was meeting my friend from Barcelona there, who she and I didn't really know each other. 
that well. And uh, that's kind of a, a risk I took traveling for a week with someone I didn't know on an island. Uh, I usually don't make that mistake. It's a rookie mistake. We had met briefly a, a year and a half earlier, and we were Facebook friends, but still, it was a big risk. It was a gamble. And uh, we had different personalities. I don't think anybody's really at fault, but um, I remember why I travel alone so much. If it comes between traveling alone or traveling with someone who maybe you don't get along with, I'd always take a loan. I'll always will. But um, no hard feelings. I mean, we still had a great time. Amazing food. And I'm going to try to post a, uh, a list of all the places I went on TravelTalesPodcast.com when I get back and uh, you know, can finally sift through all the footage and photos and everything and organize that, which is what I'm going through right now. Uh, but before I do that, I managed to record an episode with my friend Bruce. Uh, Bruce Marshall Romans is a guy I've known for 14 years. We met working at TBS together, and uh, he has gone on to be a very successful TV writer. And uh, he's a native of Kentucky, and I've been down there for the Kentucky Derby uh, five times, I think, now. And I stay with his family. Uh, I took a trip with his family to the Grand Canyon rafting a couple of years ago. Just a, a good friend and a great family. So um, I asked him if he wanted to come and talk about his native Kentucky. And uh, for people who are, I know a lot of times we talk about foreign places on this show, like Mallorca and Belgium and so on. But um, this time I thought I'd keep it domestic. And uh, if you can't get out of the country, maybe you don't have a lot of time, you're looking for a new place to go, uh, check out Kentucky. Or maybe you'll go there on business or something. There's a lot of cool things to see. And uh, we talk about it. It's history a little bit. We talk about horse racing. We talk about bourbon and uh, a few other things. So that being said, without any further ado, please enjoy my talk with my good friend, Bruce Marshall Romans. Bruce Marshall Romans. I'm going to call you Bruce Romans. You're more than welcome to do that. Okay. We've known each other for what, 14 years? Uh, since 2002. 14 years. That's wow. Correct. Long time. Very long time. And uh, you are my Kentucky representative. That is true. You're acting as the uh, rep of Kentucky, the great state of Kentucky, the bluegrass state, I think we call it. If you will. Okay. You're a native of Louisville? That's correct. Now, do you, I've, I've been corrected on this before. Do you say Louisville? Louisville? Or... You get mad when people say Louisville? Well, you got them all wrong there. <laughs> okay. Just so you know. If you're from there, it's pronounced Louisville. 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 Yes. Okay. Yeah. If you go to the, if you, when you land in Louisville, Louisville. See? You just said yeah, it. I've been Californized a little bit. <laughs> um, but when you land in the airport, they have these t shirts that are for sale in the gift shops and they spell them Louisville, Louisville. Louisville, and it has all these different variations. It's funny. <laughs> but yes, if you're a native, it's Louisville. All I knew of uh, Kentucky growing up is that it was on the way to Florida, so we had to drive through it. Straight down so, from Chicago. Yeah, from Chicago, we could go, we could, we could hit Louisville, Louisville, and that was the first big city you'd hit, after, I mean, big in quotes, but I mean, it's a decent-sized city, and that was the first one you'd hit after Chicago, so you would go... We would go down through uh, yeah, 65. Well, I guess we would hit Indianapolis hit first. Indiana Indianapolis and then Louisville. The 
And then, uh, and then it was Nashville, Chattanooga, Atlanta, and then you're in Florida. The great state of Florida. I remember it just like the back of my hand. But that's all I really knew about it. And then I did stand-up there for a little bit. And I went to Lexington and stuff in the 90s. But didn't really know much about it. And since we've met, uh, I've been down to uh, the Kentucky Derby like five times. Mm-hmm. Stayed with your, your brother and his family. Your brother is a very successful horse trainer. Correct. Dale Romans. And uh, it's been great. So for people who don't know anything about Kentucky... And if you're going to sell this as a traveling uh, place to go, as a, as a tourist destination, how would you sell it? Well, this is an unbiased, or I guess a biased opinion. <laughs> However, uh, I've been gone from living there for quite a while, and I have lived in Chicago. Right. I've lived in New York City. I've lived now in Los Angeles. I went to graduate school in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And I left, I think, permanently in 94. But... Since I've been gone, my appreciation really for Louisville has gone through the roof. I would, I would, the headline for Louisville for me would be that it's an undiscovered Southern gem. What about it has turned you around on it? Well, I think you, when you grow up, you always want to seek adventure and see what else is out there in the world. But now that I've been out in the world and suffered the sturm and drang of life, <laughs> um, Louisville has a whole lot to offer in terms of lifestyle. Uh, it's a very, very affordable city. It's very architecturally rich and interesting. There is there is access to good schools, and it has the slow sort of genteel feeling of the Deep South without <laughs> all of the uh, often perceived racism that comes with the South. <laughs> it's very culturally diverse. In the 1930s, there were a lot of churches uh, in Louisville that helped... Um, a lot of Jews in Germany escape and brought them over. We have a large Jewish population, large African American population. Well, that I know. You just lost your uh, your your greatest uh, citizen, your most famous citizen. <laughs> we, oh, uh, uh, Muhammad Ali. That's right. That's right. The Ma- greatest of all time. The greatest of all time. Um, yeah. So, uh, I, in terms of raising children, lifestyle, you can like we, you and I live in Los Angeles, and we know to buy a decent house. Just yeah. a decent two-bedroom house in Los Angeles is easily a million dollars or more. In Louisville, you can get a restored Victorian home, three stories, six bedrooms, for easily $200,000. Yeah, but you can say that about most places in America. It's depressing if you live here. It is depressing if you live here. <laughs> but the cost we, of- can, we can all go to Iowa and live like kings. True. And we got to live, live in Iowa. True, but... The cost of living is really cheap in Louisville, agreed, right. in Iowa. But the, also the cool thing about Louisville is where it's located, it's right on the Ohio River. And like you said, the, there's I-65 corridor that runs from Chicago to Indianapolis to Louisville to Nashville. And, and Cincinnati's you, nearby. Cincinnati's nearby. So that's north and south. If you go east and west, it's Interstate 64 that runs through Lexington, uh, Kentucky, and into West Virginia. And you have access to the whole eastern corridor. And if you go west, it goes straight to St. Louis. You're really within three hours, three to six hours of any really big, fun city as well. But also, uh, Louisville ha- offers a whole bunch, uh, I mean, all of that that I've said, but also it's has, it, it, in the seven, it, it's always been a cool city. I feel like in the 70s, like a lot of places in the 80s, it was a little depressed. Yeah. And I think in the 90s, it really started to flourish um, 
sort of a gentrification of the whole entire city. What brought it back? What do you think was the catalyst behind it? Well, it's it's hard to put your finger on one thing. I think that a lot of the a lot of people that live there and have grown up there love it there. It's a very generous city. There's a lot of money there, a lot of old money, a lot of new money. And I feel like a lot of people reinvest that money in the community. There's a thriving arts center. It's got the Actors Theater of Louisville, which is one of the number one regional theaters in the world, Tony Award winning. Three stages. It's all funded by, you know, mostly public donations and subscriptions. It's got the Louisville Orchestra, the Louisville Ballet, has great small museums, accessible museums. Um, that, and speaking of Muhammad Ali, there's the Muhammad Ali Center downstairs. It's a multicultural center. It's very, very cool. There's the Louisville Slugger Museum. Um, the downside is there aren't any professional teams to a lot of pe- uh, athlete, athletic teams. It's all of, about college basketball. It's all about Kentucky. college basketball. It's all about <laughs> college basketball in Kentucky. But that being said, everybody loves it. Everybody can afford a ticket. Everybody can go to the Louisville games. But also there's a minor league baseball team, the River Bats, that is now uh, super popular. It has in the field was just voted as one of the number one field, minor league fields in the country, brand new. How was that team? Wasn't there the Redbird? No, the Redbirds are the Kentucky... The, there were the Redbirds have gone. They were a minor league team, yeah. and they've since been replaced by this initiative. But I remember driving through and thinking, "I was like, how how are they not called the Sluggers?" You know uh, what I mean, Is yeah. it must be trademarked or something, right? I think it's a trademark issue. I think it's a trademark. But you think issue. they would love that? It would be like free advertising. Totally on board with that. I totally agree with you. Yeah, it seems strange. What's yep. the new one? The River Bats. The River Bats. Yeah, that that doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. But not a great <laughs> not a great name, but a great time to go to the park. Um, the other cool thing, I was talking about it being if people are interested, thriving arts community, like I said, good schools, uh, plenty of jobs, uh, low cost of living. The other great thing about the city is you can be anywhere within 15 minutes. Um, it has a completely um, redeveloped riverfront. With They took a bridge that was built in the late 1800s that was originally a train trestle, and they converted it into a walking bridge so you can walk from Louisville to Indiana. Um, uh, like a, the architectural aspect of it, it has the largest collection of brick Victorian homes standing in the country. In this area, really? mm-hmm, in this area called Old Louisville, and they're the most beautiful Victorian homes ever, like mansion size to just two floors. But uh, they're unbelievable. Okay, now everybody I know from Kentucky, you included, mm-hmm. drinks bourbon. That's right. Yeah. That's... So, what? Uh, like, do you start this up? Is this something that just happens young? It's just kind of inherited. It's always in the house. Well, I think it's expected of you when you reach a certain age. Uh, anybody, you shouldn't drink Jack Daniels. That's Tennessee. West That's Tennessee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember, yeah. I remember if somebody busted that out mm. and your cousin Paul went, get that Tennessee shit. Yeah, no, no, no Tennessee stuff. No Tennessee <laughs> stuff. Uh, I think it's just sort of expected in tradition. I mean, at the Kentucky Derby, they serve mint juleps, which is made with Kentucky bourbon. Um some, Jim Beam. They always use Jim Beam. They use the Jim Beam. Usually at the Derby, I think Jim Beam pays a lot of money to have their name oh, yeah. associated with oh, it. Oh, yes, they do. Um, but that's another great thing. Right outside Louisville, there's the um, Bourbon Trail where you can go and tour all of these bourbon distilleries and go on tastings and these old, beautiful distilleries that have been around for 100 years. There's a lot of – here's what I like about Louisville. Here's what I like about Louisville. Although it's uh, been gentrified in a lot of ways, it has also maintained its history. It's a city that has a sense of its history you know, Muhammad Ali, um, in terms of, um, its buildings, it, it preserves everything that's unique and cool about it. Everyone is aware of that. Living in Los Angeles, I feel like this is a city that doesn't have a sense of its history. No. 
they if tear, it's 50 years old, we tear right. it down. That's right. That's exactly right. And there's a lot of rich history <laughs> here going back to the 20s when it really became sort of oh, yeah. a flourishing town. And all of that is almost, all of that history is almost erased. Well, but, we're sitting in a 1920s building, I will say right, right now. That's right. Very Everything nice in this town was either built in the 20s or the 50s, it seems. That's right. Just the two booms that, that really happened, the post-war and then, yeah, the 20s when the water came in the film industry started. That's absolutely right. That's right. right. So if you, ha- if you have any sort of attraction to history, um, like I said, it's a city that really has a good sense of itself. And again, talking about the architecture, it's one of the, it's one of the only two cities, I think, in the world that has a Mies van der Rohe, a Frank Lloyd Wright, and a um, – I just blanked on the third architect – uh, I'll think of him in a minute. Was it spared mostly during the the Civil War? Or did did it get burned like everything else? It didn't get burned. It, and Kentucky in, in itself is an interesting uh, place in that regard. I was just talking to some friends at work uh, who call me Cracker because I'm <laughs> Southern. Uh, but I had to remind. <laughs> but them, in a loving way. In a loving way. In a loving way. But I had to remind <laughs> them that in the during the Civil War, Kentucky did not secede. People think it would seceded with the South, and it, it didn't. didn't. It did not. But it did allow slavery. So it is the quintessential state that brother fought brother, and there are a lot of there are a ton of Civil War battlefields throughout the state, not necessarily in the in Louisville proper. Now, when you grew up uh, and like taking history in class, did you take field trips in any of these places? Did they show it to you? We did, we did. We went to we went to Civil What's War the most sites. Famous one. Oh, uh, you put me on the spot. I uh, can't tell you what the most famous Civil War spot is. In Kentucky, there's so many of them I wouldn't say. They're, like, we don't have, we can't boast an Antietam. Right. Or, or but, Gatlinburg and, and all right, that. Right, right. You know, but Apotoma- tons of, Where is Apotoma- Apotoma- Appomattox? Appomattox. I think it's in uh, Virginia. Oh, okay. The courthouse yeah, at Appomattox right, yeah. is where they surrendered. Um, but there are lots of places to go. There's also uh, Fort Herod and Fort Boone. Uh, that are available. We went on field trips there. Uh, it's where Daniel Boone, it's the first sort of construction built in Kentucky before it was settled. It was called by the Indians Kentucky. And uh, uh, it was really a hunting ground. It, there weren't really native Indian tribes. Kentucky was seen as a largely a hunting ground. Was Boone a, a Kentucky man? He came from Virginia into Kentucky. Oh, okay. Yeah, he settled Kentucky. He was the leader of the first settlers. So why did... Uh why did bourbon become a thing there? Was there something that the way it's made that grew around there, some crop or whatever? <laughs> You're hitting on my good spots tonight. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and these are, this is some stuff I know about. The, the cool and interesting thing about bourbon, actually, I was just talking to someone today about it. The cool thing about bourbon, the way bourbon came about was almost accidental. When, when the settlers first came to Kentucky in the 18, late 1700s, 1800s, they were mostly uh, – the crop that most of the farms grew was one tobacco and two corn. And they would consistently have a surplus of corn, so much corn that they couldn't sell it all. And they would use it for, to feed themselves, and they would put it on boats and send it down the Ohio River to New Orleans. And um, that was how most of the farmers made their money. But they had so much, what they would do with the surplus corn is make whiskey, which is bourbon. Bourbon has to be 51% corn mash to qualify as bourbon. Oh, okay. So what they would do is all of these farmers were basically moonshiners because with their surplus crop, they would make this liquor and they would sell it and trade and barter with it. They would use it as money f- to buy and sell things, but also they would could make so much of it, they would start putting it in barrels and sending it down the Ohio River. Um, and it can- at the time, the large area in the middle of the state before it was broken up into counties, the largest county was Bourbon County from French. There were a lot of French. There were a lot of yeah. French that settled uh, Kentucky originally. Louisville is named after King Louis. Um, 
and what they did, and, and there is some speculation as to what exactly is true and what's not true, but uh, originally the farmers would take pickle barrels, and they would put the bourbon in the pickle barrels, but people complained about the taste because they could taste pickle. Right. <laughs> so what they started doing was burning out the insides of the barrels, these oak barrels. They would char them to burn out all oh, of the pickle taste. charred barrels. And that's where we get the charred barrels. And because when bourbon goes into the barrel, it goes in crystal clear, like moonshine. It's the char in the oak that actually turns the color uh, of bourbon as to what it is. So they would start load, they would start, get these pickle barrels, they'd burn them out, they'd make this mash, they'd load it into the barrels, and they would take it to the river and uh, onto the Ohio, load them up, and they would put Bourbon County on the barrels. And when they would go down to New Orleans to sell it, uh, everyone was like, hey, we love that bourbon stuff. And that's where, <laughs> oh, okay. that's where most people believe it got its name. So then it became as an, an industry. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So is there like a um is it always oak the barrel? Always oak. It has to be oak and they can the barrels can only be used once in terms of what's Okay, this is what I heard. Today. I think it was in Ireland that I heard this cuz uh, a lot of distilleries and stuff they buy the barrels because they're only used once in America. That's right. And you could reuse them many times if you wanted. That's Seems so wasteful. That's right. Well, it's not because it go they because all the Scottish and all the Irish buy it and put their scotch and their Irish whiskey in them. <laughs> so that's good. And we're keeping cooperage alive. The art of making wooden barrels. Uh, it's probably the only state that has any cooper active cooperages in the in the, <laughs> right. in the world right now. Uh, but that's exactly what they do. They uh, use them once. They empty the barrels, <clears throat> and then they sell them to Scotland and Ireland, and they're reused over there. So if I was going to – I still try with the bourbon, and you're much more in tune with it than I do. I know you like like Woodford Reserve. That's your preferred one? That's my like standard Maker's go-to. Mark. So many people drink Maker's Mark. It's another Kentucky. good standard go-to, yeah. But there's a hundreds, and then like the small barrel. Do you got any recommendations for people? What well, if you want to get started? Like you want to get so, a sampling? Yeah, there's so many to choose from. Pappy Van Winkle is very popular at – but, um, expensive though, super right? expensive. Mostly because it's hard to get. It's one of the oldest aged bourbons, and people are like, "Why is it so expensive?" And people have tasted it, and like it's good, but like, why? It's only because they let their and I, I may be off on numbers a little bit here, but the Pappy Van Winkle people aged their bourbon for about twenty years, so their business plan started over twenty years ago. And they start when the business started, they didn't have enough money to make a huge batch. So the fact now that every 20 years, uh, it's a very relatively very small batch of bourbon, and because it's rare, people want it. So what is, as opposed to wine, what does the aging do to bourbon to make it the older the better? It just soaks up more of the wood flavor? Well, some, yeah. Some people don't necessarily think the older the better. It's really sort of right. a personal taste, and there's something about aging it for a long time that gives it the patina of something special, which it may have. It's a little pearls before swine before me because at a certain point I can't taste much difference in bourbon. And um, it's sort of just to say our bourbon is aged longer than others. And just what happens is with the weather, the bourbon soaks into the barrel. When it's hot, it expands. And when it's cold, it retracts. And it's throughout the seasons, this expansion and retraction absorbs the flavor from the oak and the char. And that affects the ultimate taste. So the longer it's in there and it expands and, and contracts, uh, it affects the taste. Uh, one of the best, I'll give you that, I'll tell you this, this is not a lot of people know this. One of the <laughs> best bourbons, and I got this straight from the actual distillers, um, it, one of the best bourbons you can buy is a bourbon called Old Forester. It's from Brown Foreman. Old Forester. Old Forester. 
and it's really cheap. And because it's always been cheap, and there's because it's been a lot of it, it's been sort of like the wino version of right. bourbon. Right, there's cheap whiskey <laughs> called like Old Crow and Old, old, right, right, old right. whatever, Old Overholt. There's an old, yeah. anything of, old something. I was old stuff. Yeah, wary of it. But this Old Forester is some of the best flavored bourbon that you can buy. And just by the we've had a renaissance in bourbon the last 15 years. And because this is such an old brand and because it's mass produced and because it's traditionally been so cheap, people don't think it's a good bourbon. But the people that work for Brown Foreman, the people that I've met that work there, and they're the ones that make uh, Woodford Reserve and a bunch of other stuff, they swear that it's the best bourbon you can get. But nobody really buys it, at, um, so it's a little secret. Like how much is a bottle? Uh, five dollars for a uh, fifth or something. What's pretty cheap? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. See, maybe that's a good a one to start on with. There's a good one to start with. Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna. I have some. And I, I recently, uh, the um, uh, master distiller at Wild Turkey, a man named Mr. Russell, sent me through through for a bunch of crazy reasons uh, a bottle of his Russell's Reserve. It's his specific reserve that he. Um, distills himself and it's a very limited batch and that was actually that is actually very good hmm all right well i mean do people come from all over the world to go taste bourbon they do they do is is louisville in bourbon county or is no louisville's in jefferson county bourbon county has shrunk it's a lot smaller now again this is when there was only like two counties in the whole state right (laughs) Uh, but bourbon county's small so what's the is Louisville would be the the bourbon capital, or would it be Lexington or some other city? It's spread all out, <clears throat> all usually all over, but really between Louisville and Lexington, a little bit south of those two cities is bourbon territory. So, um, like Brown Foreman is located in Louisville, um, and Wild Turkey is right outside Lexington. Wild and Tur- everybody knows Wild Turkey. Everybody knows Wild Turkey and uh, Maker's Mark is uh, south of Louisville. But there are a bunch of all these other brands that are spotted around as well. Elijah Craig, et cetera, et cetera. Well, how did... Okay, moving off of... Uh, all within an hour drive, by the way. Of Louisville. <laughs> right. Moving off of bourbon, uh, when people think Kentucky, the first thing that jumps in their mind is the Derby. Yes. So what... I'm trying to think, why did, why did Kentucky, again, like bourbon, it just kind of happened that that's the area... Why did Kentucky become this big horse area? Was it the grass? Was it literally the the grass? You've heard that, yeah. Well, there's a well. They say bluegrass, right? The bluegrass is that a form of grass, or is that just a nickname of certain? It's a nickname of how it looks from a hill, okay, in the rolling pastures, (laughs) because it does have a blue tint to it, Mm -hmm. and it's also arguably why. Bourbon technically can be made anywhere. It has to have 51% corn. It has to be aged in oak, you know, original oak charred barrels. There are a couple of other aspects to it. So it, people always think it's like champagne. Bourbon has to be made in Kentucky. It doesn't. Right. But the difference is the reason why Kentucky bourbon or the theories why Kentucky bourbon is so good is because of the branch water, the water that it uses. Because underneath Kentucky is a limestone slate that goes back to ice ages. And there's theory that, that, well, the water that percolates up through the ground is filtered by the limestone naturally. So it's great natural water. And then the flip side of that regarding horses is that these horses eat the grass that is grown on limestone. And uh, the nutrients from the limestone are leached into the fields of grass and into the grass. And it gives them stronger bones. Wow. So when, when they say branch water, why is it called branch water? Uh, it, so I've heard bourbon and branch water. Is that's a, is yeah, a, bourbon and branch. It's just a um, a term for a creek or uh, a, a branch of a river that peels off. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> I was just, I always wondered a, about that. It's sort of, it, to my knowledge, it's sort of a general term for like a creek. 
Oh, okay. All right. So did the horse thing start in like the 1800s? And when was the Derby? I think we're up at 100 and... Wow, man. I think it was 143 or 44 yeah. this year. Yeah, I can't remember. Yeah, it got started by, I'm going to, I don't remember the names, but, uh, you know, this was, it was back in the 1800s, uh, post-Civil War when horse racing was uh, popular. It was, you know, originated in England, obviously, and sort of brought over here as the sport <clears throat> of kings. And there were a number of very small tracks that popped up all around the country. And um, Churchill Downs was a very small track. Um, and these two gentlemen, their names escape me, got together. And in order to promote the track, they decided to have this Big big horse race for three-year-olds, the Kentucky Derby. Mm-hmm. And it just grew in popularity. The oldest big – it's the second oldest – I think it's the second oldest big race. Uh, is the Belmont older? The Belmont is older. Yeah. And then the Preakness is after that. And because they run so close to each other, it accidentally made up the Triple Crown. And that's how the Triple Crown came to be. And just through the years, I don't uh, – you know, it's it's almost inexplicable why the Kentucky Derby has always been so famous. But it, I feel like it just gets bigger and bigger every I've year. I've noticed it. And then, like, I think I've, my first one was about 10 years ago when I first went. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've noticed the difference from last year when I went. I mean, it's it's gotten bigger and bigger. And now it's just like every celebrity's coming out of the woodwork, every right. D-list person on a, on a red carpet. Um, so what was it like as a kid going? Your father was a horse trainer. My father was a dubious and notorious yeah. horse trainer. <laughs> so you've been going since you were little. Yeah, I've been going for What was it like like in the 80s as opposed to now? Well, a lot of it, uh, your derby experience depends on your financial situation well, yeah, sure. most of the time. Sure. Um, when I was younger, my father was a well-known horse trainer, but never had the quality of horses to race in the derby. So when I was a kid in middle school and high school... My friends and I would sort of pile into my dad's car, and we would drive onto the backside. And the backside, for people that don't know, is the barn area where all the horses are kept. And back there, so it's not fancy. No. And we would have a barn party. He would buy KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken, <laughs> a big couple of buckets. That's the big, uh, the yeah. Kentucky, come That's on, right. put you guys on the map. He'd sit them out on tables for the people that worked for him, and like me and my friends. And, uh, you know, he'd have a big horse... T- horse tub full of cokes and soft drinks and then a beer and we would just sort of run around unsupervised and when you know we would run around like try to meet girls because the whole backside was crowded and that back there you could just wear shorts and t-shirts and you know you could be sort of wild and every time a race went off you would run over to the fence and you could watch them run by then yeah. you'd run back to the I've barn been back there with you yeah you've been back there with me before and then you would run back to the barn and watch the finish of the race on tv <laughs> so that was sort of what you would call a redneck derby and uh they're a lot of fun that's a lot of fun and also the infield is a big deal we did that in high school and when i was in college a little bit you pay twenty dollars and you just go have a big party and you're lucky if you see a horse all day yeah. that's like the infield of the indy 500 or any of those yeah it's just yeah. a big just a big party just a big party, you know, boys and, you know, trying to meet girls and running around and crazy people in costumes and people doing crazy things and games. And, yeah. Uh, so I've been like the recipient of the VIP all the times I've been going because Dale, your brother, is like a big shot. Yeah. So now and he's had horses in the Derby. He's come in third twice, I think. That's right. right. Yep. Twice. Yeah. He's won the uh, Preakness. He's, yep. he's a big deal. He's run third in the uh, Belmont, I think, four, three times. Or yeah. Four times, so yeah. you ruined me for the Derby. I can't go back to like, I can't go to the infield like, yeah. uh, like an animal. No, not anymore. It's a very different I can't experience. can mingle now. with the little people. Throughout the years, the experience has changed. So now when we go, and it's just due to my brother's success. Now, it's funny growing up because you grow up on the backside, and uh, 
having you know it's like the horse industry there is like the film industry here and you people grow up here dreaming of being a movie star or being a successful writer or being on tv and when you're in the horse business there like the having a horse in the derby that's it that's the end all and be all and my father was never although he was you know successful he was not that kind of successful and having a horse in the derby was a pipe dream like thought it would you know it was something that would never happen to us and when i say us i really just mean my family but my brother now dale uh who sort of followed in my father's footsteps um in the 90s started training horses on his own uh had you know did well and then gradually did better and better and in you know in the early 2000s he sort of blew up and so now he, like you said, he's he's won multiple Grade One races all around the world. He won the Dubai Cup, the largest race in the world. He's never won the Derby yet. That's the the dream he's still chasing. But chasing, but like you said, he's had six horses in it. But now, by virtue of my brother being a very successful, arguably one of the top ten in the world horse trainers, when you and I get to go to the Derby now, we get to you know draft off of oh, him and great. we get to go first class free dinners free drinks it's like i'm with dale yeah, i'm just yeah, i yeah. just following his wake just follow him i'm just in his shadow all the uh, time I'm, i'll just go where he was so i could probably say that i've had just about every derby experience that you can oh. have from actually sneaking into places you know and you know not really being supposed to being where i'm not supposed to be and stealing beer running around you know as a dirty kid in shorts to now wearing sitting in the owner's box sitting we in did the that owner's one box. year oh that yep. was nice yep being in the paddock when they settled barbaro and all of these greats and watching american fair last year and um because we've had tickets that were like a thousand dollars each yeah or something like that so if people want to go i mean can you just buy them online do they go on sale like a month before or I mean, how can people if they want to go because it's it's not an easy ticket to get it's not an easy ticket to get and those thousand dollar tickets, by the way, you and I never had to pay for. Yeah, <laughs> thankfully, thank you. Uh, you're welcome, Mike, for that generous. Offer. Oh my God, that uh, was the people best. can go online and try to buy them. Um, I'm not really sure how it works. I've never bought a derby ticket before. Right. I know there are some available for sale, but a lot of them are locked up ahead of time. Um, it's easier to go to the Oaks, which is the female version of the Derby, the Friday the day before. before yeah. yeah, which is literally just as fun. The Oaks is really more for local people. We love it. We dress up. Everybody wears pink because it's uh, in celebration of women. And, yeah, it's all and Phillies. Phillies, yep. And then, um, uh, but what happens at Derby, there's a lot of VIP guests, um, and a lot of the boxes are taken up by VIPs, you know, sold specifically uh, through the uh, through Churchill Downs. And then also the people that have horses in those races that day, like my brother can take us because he gets access to those tickets before they go on yeah, sale. Yeah, he had a stack of them. Yeah, and because, you know, he runs eight horses on Derby Day, and for each one of those eight horses, they probably have three or four owners and their kids. And so it ends up being a huge entourage, and that's... Um, that's where most of the VIP stuff goes or boxes. But you can go online. People that have season tickets or that buy them will often resell them uh, just at a markup right. price. I will say for people who are thinking of going, uh, book your plane tickets early. That's that's the big key if you're going to fly in. Because uh, every time I've tried to go, oh, I've gone five times. <laughs> I don't think I've flown into Louisville. Maybe flew into Louisville once. Maybe. The rest yeah. of the time I've flown into Indianapolis, which is about two hours. Two hours away. Two hours away. Uh, Cincinnati, which is about an hour. Hour and 15. Yeah. Um, I've flown into Chicago and drove down with my brother. Yeah, I've done everything because I just couldn't get into Louisville. Yeah, it's really tricky because the big days are Thursday and Friday. Plane ticket, 
prices go through the roof and they sell out quickly. And if you want to get out on Sunday, it's really hard. It's really hard. And Louisville, it's a big small town. Like there's a, there are over a million people, but for the Kentucky Derby, there are at least a half a million people that come into the city. <laughs> so uh, it's hard to get hotels, and you can. It's not you. Well, you could argue if it's gouging or not, but they make you the hotel rooms are at a premium, and you usually have to book for three nights. Yeah, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night. So it can make it difficult. So if your dad, when you were growing up on Derby Week, did you get uh, school off? We get Friday off. We would get Friday off before the Saturday <laughs> because all the teachers would call in sick for the Oaks. So they decided <laughs> that, and then they couldn't get. So everybody was sick on Friday, so they just started canceling school on Friday. And sometimes during the week we would get out early because it's a lot like Mardi Gras. It's not just the Oaks on Friday and the Derby on Saturday, but it's uh, the steamboat race, the old wooden paddle boats that race up and down the Ohio. Uh, the Delta Queen from New Orleans comes up and mm-hmm. races the Belle of Louisville, which is cool. And then there's the parade, and there's the boat race. I mean, and the uh, uh, um, balloon race. I mean, there's activities every day for a week. Oh, Mini marathon and marathon with the Derby marathon that you can run in and. Uh, it's a whole week of celebration, so not a lot gets done in that city during that week. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, you just told me about this thing for the first time. I had heard of it. Uh, Thur- Thurby? Thurby, yeah. See, this is like an insider's <laughs> tip. This is a locals thing, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they go the Thursday before the Derby. The Derby's always the first Saturday in May. That's right. So the Thursday... It's uh, a party day for the locals at the track. Yes. So you and your like high school buddies go there. Every year, yes. Uh, and I do buy those tickets, so I have to pay for those. But uh, <laughs> they sort of in, it sort of happened by accident, I think, because, because Oaks, the Friday before Derby, is so crowded. And because the Derby is so hard to get tickets and it's so crowded, uh, people, local people, who just wanted to go and hang out with their friends, like if you and I just wanted to go and hang right. out and drink beer without the hassle, everyone... It sort of evolved that a lot of people in Louisville would just go on Thursday before people got in town and sort of celebrate Derby right. and launch it a little bit early, and they started calling it Derby. So now when I go home, I get usually two or three boxes, and it's a time for my friends from high school and I to get together and sit and, and you know, it's watch the like the, the night races. before Thanksgiving. That's right. It's like the night before Thanksgiving. <laughs> and we have a fantastic time, and the races are all good, and it's, you know, they have bands playing, and it's a huge celebration, but it's really something that the locals take advantage of. Not that other people aren't welcome. If you come in, everybody would have a good time, but uh, it's a really good time from without the uh, pressure of entertaining out-of-town guests that I get to go and have fun with, just with my friends. Well, the other opening, or the other locals uh, tip that you told me about was the first day at the track in Lexington? Yes. The first <laughs> yeah. day of racing there? That's at like Keeneland. At Keeneland. That's the other one. Yeah. And that's like a big part. Everybody gets dressed up and the oh, whole man. thing. Yeah. It's funny because, and I'm speaking in broad terms, but Churchill Downs has more of a reputation for being a blue-collar track. Mm-hmm. It's not super fancy, although it's getting more fancy. They keep building on, and um, it's big. uh and uh but it's not there's nothing overall fancy or his, the only historic part now are the twin spires they right. built out around it but that wooden part where the twin spires which yeah, is really cool which is where look, we always go right but you can look at it and see where it's like oh there's the original part of it yeah, yeah. and the rest is these giant yeah. you know brick grandstands that are built around it so you could argue that the personality of it isn't right. fantastic although it's nice but <laughs> keeneland definitely has a sense of itself it's it's river creek and brick and mortar, beautifully manicured lawns, rolling hills it sits on. It's a much smaller track. And Lexington itself is more of a blue blood 
town, and that's where most of the horse farms are. Yeah, yeah, that's what so, I heard. So when Keeneland, Keeneland only races for about five weeks in the summer. It's only one meet. And the opening day, everybody that goes to the University of Kentucky and horse fans from Louisville, everybody converges on it. And uh, it's really, really beautiful and spectacular. And it's very traditional in the sense that, like, everybody dresses up for Derby. But if you go to the races any other day, people don't dress up. But people dress up when they go to Keeneland, yeah. which is sort of nice. I think I may have told you one time, like, there was twi- two times in my life when I could say I've been somewhere and seen the, the most beautiful collection of women. And one, <laughs> one, one was – the second most was my first day on the – campus of chapel hill all oh, right <laughs> and then the number one day was the opening day at keenlet i couldn't believe like all these people well, you realize it was dresses. a lot of the same girls yeah yeah, they're, yeah it's, it's pulling from the same uh, <laughs> the gene pool gene pool there uh <laughs> but it's a lot of fun and fantastic so what, what would that be in june or july june august oh it's in august or uh it either they, it changes up sometimes from year to year but it's july or august you, at the end of july or beginning of august it starts okay Mm-hmm. Man, that's uh, so. I'm trying to think. So we did the horse racing. We did, but horse racing. I may be off a little bit on that. Actually, I'm thinking Saratoga. Uh, Keeneland has a fall meet that's a little bit later. So I apologize. Now, it's interesting now how it's getting. The crowds are getting bigger, but I think mostly because of the celebrity aspect of it, and just you know people want to be at a at a scene. But horse racing is kind of like having hard times around the country. Right? Like tracks are closing everywhere. Yeah, they closed Hollywood Park down here. Yeah. It's interesting. It's it's a lot of land. It's expensive. (laughs) And people just don't gamble as much anymore on that. People do like casinos and, you know, slot machines and and poker. A lot of people can get online accounts and gamble that way. They don't have to go to the races necessarily anymore. It's funny because I feel like it it ebbs and flows a little bit. Um, Last year with American Pharaoh winning the first Triple Crown since 1978 was a huge sort of... um, Right. You know, infusion into the sport. People, a lot of people got interested that weren't historically interested. And I was just reading uh, an article today. My niece Bailey and a bunch of uh, trainers' kids are doing Kentucky Derby kids, and they're tweeting about it live as, as their experience as they go through the Derby when their parents have horses in big races. And they're tweeting and taking pictures, and it's an effort to let this sort of millennial and post-millennial generation sort of know what it's about because it is Instagram uh, the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think it's working like more and more people are I think it's I think it's coming back a little bit um really on the heels of American Fair one sort of um that historic event last year and winning the Triple Crown. And you but, never wanted any part of it. You didn't want to be in the business or anything. I just don't have any talent for it. I would go to the racetrack with my father and my two older brothers and it was like they were speaking Chinese when they were talking about a horse. <laughs> they would talk about a horse being off in the front or like his back end isn't right. Or And I would look at the horse. I had no idea what they were talking about. <laughs> and I still don't. I just have, I love it and I love being a fan of it. And, you know, we love our horses. We take great care of them. That's another thing people think, you know, that it, horse racing is cruel, but it's really not. These horses are born to inbred to run. It's in them. They like doing that. If they don't like doing it, you know, they're sold to be uh, show horses and pets. Um, they have the best medical care because a vet comes and checks on them every day. They have the best food because they have dietitians figuring out their diet, their exercise, walked, cleaned, bathed, and they have real. But we have real bonds with them. You've seen it before, and with their grooms that actually take care of them. Um, but I'm digressing from. Oh, why I didn't do it? I just I I I, I had no talent for it, and I you know I'll love it and I'll be a fan and I love the horses and and seeing them. But and I wish I did, but. I just don't. Uh, I was. Uh, if I had any other gifts, they were, if I had any gifts, they weren't on the racetrack. So, from a tourism 
point of view, the best time of year. I mean, spring is usually a pretty good time, although it does rain sometimes at the Derby. Mm -hmm. So the best months, because I know the summers can be brutal Mm -hmm. there, heat-wise. It's very humid in Louisville, so if you're not into humidity, it's it's in the Ohio Valley and... Uh, say like October is a good one. October is, a, is a November. I think fall in Louisville is fantastic. Louisville, like Chicago, it has a bunch of. This is another great thing. It has a bunch of festivals, um, and a lot of them happen in the fall. The fall festivals. There's also a fall meet at Churchill Downs. It's a good time to go to the races. Um, and I was talking about sort of the gentrification of Louisville in the redevelopment of the whole downtown area, which is historic. The downtown um, now there's this new area that they're calling Nulu which is New Louisville. New Lou? Is, where, this, is this the hipster area? It's sort of the hipster area. I mean, a lot of people compare... It's funny because people that haven't lived there or been there that have recently gone there compare Louisville to being a lot like Chapel Hill, a lot like Atlanta, a lot like uh, Austin, Texas, in terms of like the genteel feel. But there's sort of also a very sort of... Well, it's a big university, and that like, always helps university. with diversity and a little scene you know, right. somewhere. But also they compare it in a weird way to Portland, where it's yeah. a it's a lot of uh, sort of hipstery now <laughs> in a good way I would say I'm yeah. not a big hipster fan but everybody has, but like, every city seems to have a little pocket you just got to find yeah. it but it helps if there it's easier to find if there's a uh, university nearby that's right and University of Louisville's big right it's a lot of a lot of commuter students but still it's a yeah. lot of big enrollment right big enrollment I think like thirty three thousand I just got an email from the alumni association yeah. Um, yeah, it's so it's a strange city with a strange personality. It, like the, I think it's keep Austin weird, or you see these T-shirts, yeah. and it's that's the same thing in Louisville. It's still a lot of privately owned businesses, local owned and local grown food, et cetera, et cetera. In that way, like mm-hmm. Portland, I guess I was saying, um, the whole Nulu area is a bunch of old buildings, hundred year old buildings that now have been restored and turned into really great restaurants, gift shops, movie theaters, um, and it has this total great feel and vibe to it and you can park and you can get there and <laughs> parking fun. Yeah. what i know what um any uh restaurant recommendations for people that want to go any standouts in your mind there are it was actually recently ranked i think in like the top 10 of cities in the country for restaurants sort of outside of the new york and chicago la area louisville was louisville was really yeah uh there's a really great uh restaurant in there's this great hotel that's downtown, and it's in an old warehouse that's been completely revitalized by some of the members of the Brown Foreman family that own you know, the, the Bourbon dynasty. They bought this building, and they transformed it, and they made it into a hotel museum called 21C. Mm-hmm. Have you been there? I don't think I've taken no, you there. No, no, no. Okay. Uh, and now they're opening up one in Austin, and I think one uh, somewhere else are starting to franchise it. But... They took this old building, they gutted it, and they made it into a museum. The first floor is a museum, contemporary art, and the exhibits always change. And it's a five-star hotel above that. And then they have also a great restaurant and a great bar. All the restaurant food is locally owned and farmed. Mm -hmm. And a bar, I can't remember the name of the restaurant, but it's in the 21C. 21Z. 21C stands for 21st Century. Okay. There's a huge, I think, 20-foot statue, golden statue of David out front it's bizarre <laughs> art uh interesting stuff but uh that is a great restaurant oh I can't i can't remember the name of that i apologize is there a food that that region's known for uh, you don't think of it oh, well the fried chicken i guess <laughs> fried chicken is big grits you know you think we grew up with a kfc was around all our lives but it was really only been since like the 60s right i think I, so yeah yeah i think they started franchising in the 60s because there i gotta say there's kfc everywhere around the world 
And people don't, they don't even know that the K stands for Kentucky. Right. A lot of the times, you know, they just, which is what they wanted. I think they, yeah. when they switched, they, from did that Kentucky branding. fried, right. They didn't yeah. want people, KFC. The, the, specifically the fried word in there. Just some smiling old cracker with a smiling old tea. cracker <laughs> and a white suit with yep. great chicken. <laughs> you know, the food in Louisville, it's, it's definitely a Southern vibe. Sure. And now sort of since, you know, there are a lot of foodies and sort of culinary arts have has become popular. A lot of those new restaurants that I talk about, I've tried a bunch of them, and there's so many. I and since I don't live there, I can't name them off. Too right. many. I apologize, but um, but it's got to be cheaper than going out here. It's a lot cheaper. It's a lot cheaper. It's all. I mean, everything there is affordable, which is crazy. I go there and I, I can't believe how cheap it. I mean, if you and I moved there, we'd live like kings. Oh we would. We never have to work again. Um, but <laughs> don't it, tempt me. Yeah, most of the food there, or a lot of the food, you can get sort of twists on traditional Southern food, meaning mm-hmm. grits and fried chicken and um, you know biscuits and gravy. All of those um, classic staples. Uh, a lot of these places offer new twists on that. How's the how have the race relations been lately? Like in the last ten twenty years. Have it changed since you were a kid? I mean, have you noticed anything, or is it just kind of like... I find a lot of places in the country, there's always been kind of like, especially in the South, there's some kind of this silent agreement <laughs> that it's not, uh, you know, it's not legally segregated. Right. It's just kind of naturally went that way. Self-segregated. To a <laughs> it's self-segregated. Degree. Right down to the restaurants, certainly the churches. Yeah. Um, that it's just kind of like, well, this is the way it is, and... I don't know. Have you noticed any changes? Well, or you know what's interesting is I know exactly what you're talking about, and there's definitely you know there's definitely some of that sentiment that lingers. But I think more with my parents' generation. When I went to school, I was telling somebody this story the other day. When I went to school, I went to school with a bunch of black kids, and totally like we hit it off. I never thought anything about it. I remember um, one of my friends came over. He was a black guy. And my mom came in, and she was like surprised, not not <laughs> right. not like anything bad, but she was like, "Oh, like uh, Dante, this is Lynn, and everything." And then I remember I was at his house one time, and his mom came in and was like, "Who's that white boy in my house?" <laughs> right. I was like, "Oh, okay." Like, but the funny thing is, like, it never dawned on us that that would be anything out of the ordinary for them. No, we were uh, we're kind of the first generation that it doesn't. I was thinking about this earlier. I mean, there. Up until like the mid '60s, you know, you were still. It was a much different world. You know what I mean? And um, so I think a lot of would you see a lot of anger in the politics yeah. and stuff like that. There's still people alive today that couldn't eat at a, at a lunch counter, right? And uh, and also the people that turned them away right. are still alive. Yeah, that's and then right. their children are like our parents' generation uh, who grew up seeing it. And yeah. that was just the way it was. And so it's just kind of like uh, in the last, it's only 50 years, they've seen every bit of those things that they knew just kind of slowly being chipped away in terms of like, well, there was the civil rights and then women. Right. And then gays and immigrants. And it's all been kind of chipped away. And uh, it's interesting, though. I mean, and this is kind of like, you know, they're still. We we think it was like that was so long ago, but they're still yeah. they're still alive today. The people well, who suffered and did the doling out, you know. Yeah. So, and I don't know when you hear things about you know, let's go back to the good old days and or that. It's like well, who was it good for? <laughs> yeah, really, it good for? It wasn't good for everyone, right? 
you know, so just well, it's going to take time still, but you know, there are certainly places in Louisville. The west end of Louisville is traditionally uh, a black neighborhood. Mm-hmm. The south end of Louisville is tradition has this is all traditionally, and these are changing. But the south end of Louisville, where I grew up, was very blue collar white factory, and then the east end of Louisville are were mostly wealthy people. And that's sort of like where you're from, what high school everybody's identified. Right. The number one question, if you meet anybody from Louisville and you're from Louisville, is like, what high school did you go to? Because that sort of determines right. every, your socioeconomic history. Or what history. church you go to. Or what that, church you go to. That's very common in the South. Um, that being said, I feel like I, growing up, never felt unsafe going anywhere. And I think my friends, vice versa, that weren't white as well. Um, I mean, I think there's probably... A, uh, there are, you know, are always tensions, but it was interesting because, like I said, I've been gone a long time. I go back a lot, but I haven't lived there for a long time. But all my friends from high school, pretty much everybody that grows up there, usually stays there. But it was funny when Muhammad Ali died a few weeks ago, and they had their big, they had a very big, um, you know, funeral for him. They drove, rode his body around through the streets, through his old house, or past his old house, past the Muhammad Ali Center, and they buried him and. One of the most exclusive cemeteries in the country. It's Cave Hill Cemetery. Right. It's pre. Whereas a kid, he wouldn't have even been let in. That's right. He wouldn't have. Yeah. <laughs> but when you watch the videos of that, it's black people, white people. It's everybody out together, sort of giving him praise and throwing roses on his coffins and I mean on his uh, mm-hmm. hearse. And uh, then, and my mom told me because uh, she's a big Louisville Pride person. She was like, Will Smith was here and he loved Louisville. And then. <laughs> I saw my friends on Facebook were posting Will Smith's tweet about Louisville, you're one of the best cities I've ever been to. Jada and I are coming back, and you can look it up. It's funny. And I was like, <laughs> but it's a very welcoming city. And in turn, and I would say when people think of the South and race relations, it's definitely not what you see in those videos in Louisville from, you know, from the 60s. And, and well, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not – and I don't know if it's really had a history of that. But, I mean, you know, there's – Tensions, I guess, everywhere, but I think Louisville is a very welcome. Well, I'll give you an we example. We send you some Mexicans and Asians. Yeah, we have a up. lot of Mexicans. We have a lot of Mexicans. <laughs> Not that many Asians yet, I don't think. But I'll give you an example. In the 80s and the 90s, there was a mayor, Jewish mayor, Jerry Abramson. What? Yep. And his vice mayor, his number two, was a black man named William Summers, the fourth. I went to school with William Summers, the fifth. He was my friend in my class. But those are the, were the, our two civic leaders for, I think, four terms. And that just mm-hmm. gives you an example. It's not a traditional what you want, like having a Jewish mayor for 16 years and a black vice mayor always elected. Uh, people are a little surprised when I tell them that because they think, <laughs> you know. But he and, and those guys are really credited probably with leading the charge of, you know, cha- turning around the downtown Louisville and rebuilding it up. What happened to Louisville sounds like a, what happened to a lot of a lot of uh, Midwestern cities in the uh, in the 60s and 70s is just like. Once everybody started moving to the suburbs and they just mm-hmm. let the, the downtown to rot, you know, Detroit, right. Cleveland, St. Louis, all the same story. Pittsburgh in some way. I mean, so the cities just got smaller and poorer and rougher. It was it was tough, you know. And so, but it, yeah, finally people are, it's usually the artists are the first wave, you know, because they need cheap real estate or students or whatever. And yep. They kind of bring that wave of building a place in and... But yeah, it takes a government that's willing to back it, yeah. you know, and, and the people, the people need to invest in and, yeah. and actually put businesses in and and local people to support it. That's why that whole keep Louisville weird is a big movement in Louisville, like <laughs> supporting local businesses privately owned. Well, do you see yourself going back or 
I need to make one million more dollars. <laughs> Not that I already have a million. <laughs> oh, Dr. Evil style. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One million dollars. <laughs> and then I'm going to, I would definitely love to buy one of those old Victorian homes and be able to divide my time between Los Angeles and there at some point. But you don't want to buy a horse. I don't want to buy a horse. I don't want to buy it. Not yet. That's a rich man's game, yeah, a yeah, horse. Yeah. That's a good way to lose money. They eat a lot. Yeah. It's an expensive hobby. Yes, They, it they is. call it the sport of kings for a reason. Ugh. Yeah, I don't know. I, I couldn't do it. We got to sell a show. Yeah, we got to get a, get a TV show on there. Then we can buy a horse. There you go. We can buy a bunch then. I got a bunch. Of, I, I told you I made a whole list of names. Yeah, yeah, I got we, pages of names. I, I I always keep adding to it. I, I, I think I have great names. You send me some great lists, and I forwarded them on to horse buyers. Yep, and I got nothing. Nothing, nothing out of it. Thanks for nothing. Oh, but speaking of that, we never even talked about what you do and the shows you're working on, so you could plug you're a uh, very successful TV writer. Oh, thank so you. So plug nice some of the say. shows that you have uh, written on and what we can uh, find. All right. I spent a number of years on Hell on Wheels, the Western on AMC. It's in its final season right now, airing right now. Um, Falling Skies, that was on TNT, the Steven Spielberg show that Noah Wiley starred in. Um, Marco Polo, which the next season, season two, is releasing July the 1st on Netflix. And I'm currently working on a very exciting show. It's uh, a lot of people are looking forward to seeing um, for Marvel Comics and Netflix called The Punisher. The Punisher. Based on the comic book character, The Punisher. He was introduced in season two of Daredevil. He's played by the wonderfully talented John Bernthal. And uh, we're working on that now. And that'll be out sometime next year. It's exciting. Yeah, it's very exciting stuff. Kentucky Boy makes it big. <laughs> well, you actually uh, shot a film. You wrote and directed a, a, a film. I wrote. I wrote. I didn't direct it. Oh, yeah, you I wrote, wrote and starred in it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a film that shot in uh, Louisville. In Louisville on the racetrack, at the racetrack. Do, do people still come up to you and go, what happened to that movie that you shot? Yeah, and I go, hey, it's on Netflix. You can watch it. <laughs> well, it, was a very it. Small, it was a very small film. Frank no Langella was in it? Well, yeah, Frank Langella and Laura Allen, the wonderful actress Laura Allen. People might know her. And Frank, the multiple, multiple Tony Award and Oscar-nominated actor. It was called How You Look to Me. How You Look to and Me. And people can find it on Netflix. You can find it on Netflix. Written and starring Mr. Bruce Romans. That's right. Now, were you Bruce Marshall Romans in that? Or you... I was think I was just Bruce Romans. I've always been Bruce <laughs> that was Marshall. acting name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was always Bruce Marshall Romans, and then people dropped off the Marshall, and it, now it's back, and so it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That's my mother's maiden name, so it's sort of like my a nod to my mom's family. But oh, well, thank you for uh, doing this, Michael. Thank you for having me. Very appreciate much. I appreciate it. it. And uh, look for his uh, shows, Marco Polo coming out uh, July first. Is that Friday? Yep, on Netflix. Friday, two. and then uh, the Punisher. Look yep. for it next year. Thanks, man. Thanks, Michael. Bye bye.